0: Following a, an experience the other day when I was preaching, I do actually have my sermon notes written out on a piece of paper. Uh, so the level of extemporizing necessary, uh, even if the technology doesn't work. But look at this, amazing slides, fantastic, good. So I can now wander away from my notes uh, without any fear of going too far off, off-piste, as it were. Um, so it's a funny little story, isn't it, really? And um, you know, there's, there's Elisha sort of trotting along. A woman comes up to him and says, my son's about to be sold into slavery to pay my debts. And he says, go and do this. So she does get some oil and he, he disappears. He doesn't feature in the end of the story. He's gone off and done other things. Um, and there are a couple of little sort of vignettes that, um, that come about in, in Elisha's life. And this is, this is one of the, the early ones. Um, and I was trying to sort of think of how is this relevant to us in the modern day? Is this a story about what to do when your credit card bills are really high and you can't afford to put petrol in the car or something? Is God going to fill your tank forevermore? Or I don't know. And so I was thinking about it a little, and I think there are some things that we can draw out of it. But I thought what might also be helpful, given that we're going to be focusing on yeah. Elisha for the next few weeks is actually to have a little bit of a context as to who Elisha was and where he was and what was going on around him. So perhaps if we just do that for a couple of minutes. So let's have a look at the next slide. Um, So you'll remember Solomon. So if you remember the history of Israel, you had the Israelites being ruled by sort of prophets and judges after they'd gone into the Promised Land. And then they kept campaigning to God to give us a king. And eventually, God did give them a king, and that, of course, was Saul, who turned out to be a pretty rubbish king in some respects and pretty good in others. Saul was followed by David, and we all remember David, very famous in the Bible, lots of written David, who was an extraordinary man. And you'll then remember that David had a number of sons, one of whom was Solomon, who we generally think of as Solomon the Wise. Um, he was a lot less wise than that because one of the things he did was he just sort of um, Got a whole load of wives all in one place. And every time he had a new political alliance or wanted to do a deal or, or possibly just went down to the shops, he seemed to acquire another wife. And clearly that was very unwise and he ended up in a deeply unhappy situation. Not a great surprise, therefore, to find that once Solomon died, Israel began to fall apart. And in fact, it split into two kingdoms. So ten of the tribes, the northern tribes, um, formed one kingdom, the kingdom often referred to as the kingdom of Israel, and the southern tribes, two southern tribes, formed the kingdom of Judah. And the books of Kings and also Chronicles talk about all the goings-on in those two kingdoms. It's pretty confusing because often the kings had similar names. You often had similar named kings at the same time in the two different kingdoms, so it can be a bit of a nut to sort of pull them all apart. If you want a very quick pencil sketch, then all the kings of the northern kingdom were bad, and most of the kings of the southern kingdom were bad, with a few exceptions. So that's the, sort of, that's the basic takeaway. Um, the other thing, was, again, some of these names will be familiar to you, We're talking about Elisha. I always confuse Elijah and Elisha. It's easy. They're in alphabetical order. So Elijah came first, and then Elisha came afterwards. Um, And they were both Israeli or Israelite prophets. They were in the northern kingdom. And then we had a bunch of other prophets that are referred to in the Bible, different books (coughs) named after them. Um, And they were also in the northern kingdom. So Amos, for example, Hosea, and also Jonah, uh, the famous fisher person. And then the Judean prophets, again famous names here, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel, they all came after Elijah and Elisha. So Elijah and Elisha are around about sort of 8, 98, 50 BC, um, and then Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel came later. The other thing which I didn't actually write down on here but is worth bearing in mind is the fate of the two kingdoms Remember, the two kingdoms were ultimately conquered by the Assyrians and taken into slavery. Northern kingdom went first. Southern kingdom went a bit later. And then if you remember the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah comes sometime after that exile. Daniel, remember, was in exile. And then at the end of the exile, you have Nehemiah when... The southern kingdom is sort of being restored. And interestingly, of course, if you think about um, Jesus talking about the parable of the uh, the good neighbor, the good Samaritan, that sort of divide between the two kingdoms was still very present, even in Roman times, where you had the southern kingdom, the Judeans, who felt they held the true religion because the temple was in Judea, but back in history, you had the Samaritans, the Israelites, the northern kingdom, who obviously couldn't easily get to Jerusalem, because now it's in another kingdom, and so they'd been worshipping God sort of elsewhere. They'd also been worshipping a lot of other gods as well. One of the problems with the northern kingdom um, was that they very quickly went away from the God of Judah, and the God of Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and they began worshipping Baal and some of the other local uh, gods in that area. Um, Most of the local gods were pretty unpleasant and required human sacrifice and that sort of thing. Um, One of the famous kings of the northern kingdom is Ahab, who had come sort of prior to the point we're talking about. Um, Again, you might remember Elijah having a famous... Uh, sort of a battle with the prophets of Baal on the mountaintop where he said, let's have a little spiritual test. Let's see whose God can light the sacrifice without any humans interfering. Um, and, uh, and, of course, God lit the sacrifice that Elijah had set out. Um, and uh, Elijah spent a great time teasing the prophets of Baal, saying maybe Baal was on the toilet um, But whatever he was doing, he wasn't paying attention, and he didn't like their sacrifice. So that's the context. So you've got a broken kingdom. You've got a lot of conflict going on. You've got a lot of people going away from the true God, both in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom. And then you've had this extraordinary prophet, Elijah, who was a real sort of warrior prophet, if you like. And you may remember that that he then was taken up in a fiery chariot in a very sort of miraculous way. Have a look at the next slide. So Elisha was a disciple of Elijah. They'd been working together for quite a few years, and Elisha had been following him around and sort of observing Elijah's miracles and teachings. And he literally inherited the mantle, and that's where we get this phrase from. If you hear somebody inheriting somebody's mantle, it comes from this story, because as Elisha, as Elijah was taken up to heaven, um, he left his cloak on the ground, and Elisha picked it up, and then uh, hit the waters of the river and was able to walk across, and that was the first sort of miracle, the first real sign um, that uh, that he was the, he was a man of God. Now, um. If you have a Bible in front of you, you can work out the answer to this question immediately, but um, I just thought it might be um, entertaining to pick your brain and see how much you know about Elisha. His second recorded miracle is one that a number of us in this room should probably appreciate. He was walking along the road, and some youths, so if you think youths these days are bad, no change, some youths came down to the side of the road and began to shout at him, saying, go on up, baldy, or possibly worse things. Um... Elisha's solution was to call a bear out of the woods and the bear ripped them apart. So, um, that was sort of a little bit worse than just tagging them and sending them on community service. Um, So, whether one takes that as a sort of, you know, sign of of godliness or just sort of, you know, whatever, I don't know. But um, it's it's an entertaining miracle. Recorded in Two Kings if you want to go and take that as your Bible study for the week. But maybe let's think more about the widow, because I think that's possibly an easier story to grapple with. So let's have the next slide. So the story tells us here this is a widow of a godly man. Now again, it's important to understand that although these two kingdoms were in a pretty sorry state, there were still quite a lot of godly people, and in fact there were various what you might almost call tables or, or study schools where people gathered together, and it would appear that her husband was was one such person. So he's clearly being sort of flagged as as a man of God. And whatever's happened, he's he's died, and he's left her in in deep financial distress. No social security system. Remember in those days? You relied on your sort of on your family primarily. If you were lucky, you could then rely on friends and neighbours. And it would certainly appear. That she's not able to rely on her friends and neighbors here. She's relying on her sons, and they haven't been able to succeed in paying down the debts. And so, as was standard in those days, if you couldn't pay your debts with money, you had to pay your debt with labor. So this going into slavery was absolutely standard practice. Um, Jewish law laid down that that slavery should be sort of temporary rather than permanent, so it wasn't lifetime but it was a period of time of indentured servitude where you didn't get paid for what you were doing. You had to do what the creditor told you to do, and your labor would pay off the debt. So a pretty unpleasant situation. And obviously if her sons were taken away, the creditor wouldn't want the old woman, because she would be very useful, to strapping young sons, pretty good payment for the debt. He'd take them away to wherever, and, uh, and then she would be left and would almost certainly starve to death, unless the neighbors or some other people gave her charity, um, be very very hard for her to support herself um, in that society. So she really is at a very very desperate point. She's facing losing her sons and then likely starving to death herself. So she asks Elisha to help. Um, oil is miraculously provided, and it's enough to pay off debts. And as you see, it's then also enough to actually set up her and her sons um, for sort of for life thereafter, at least on some level. So it's clearly a lot of oil. Now the oil itself was very valuable, because you could use olive oil, you could obviously use it for cooking uh, and and for other things, but you could also use it for lighting um, as well. So it was an absolutely essential sort of staple um, of life. So that's the story. What can we do with this story? Well, let's have a look at the next slide. (coughs) Um, I think one of the things that's important to understand, and it comes out of this story but it's an absolute truth which is essential to grab hold of, is that the circumstances we face as Christians, or indeed as non-Christians, our circumstances are not determined by our goodness, or indeed by our badness. Now I think most of us, probably all of us, have a concept of of fairness, of balance, of sort of rightness. You see this all the time in the headlines. So-and-so got off with only sort of six months suspended. It's an outrage. Why is it an outrage? Well, because they did something bad and something bad hasn't happened to them. There's no balance, there's no justice. Or a really good person I know got cancer and died very suddenly. That's outrageous. Why is it outrageous? Well, because they didn't deserve it. They were a good person, and they should therefore have had a long and happy life. We have these concepts deeply, deeply, deeply ingrained in our heads. And this causes a huge amount of confusion and distress and upset when we become Christians. Because when we become Christians, we we can really grab hold of the idea that there is good, and there is evil, and there is sin, and there is righteousness, And God holds us accountable for what we do and who we are and how we behave. And he's provided a solution for all of that as well. And there's a tendency to think, well, that solution should apply right the way through. I'm a Christian, therefore I should be okay. It should start now. And it doesn't. And when it doesn't, then we start to say, well, where's God? Why has God abandoned me in this? Here was a woman who we imagine she was also a godly person. The family were godly people. We don't know, but it, it would be a reasonable sort of guess to make. And something awful has happened to them. Her husband's died. He was a godly man. Why did he die so suddenly? More importantly, why did he die leaving my life such a mess? Well, we don't know the answers to those questions. But we do know that it happens to good people. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. Now there's a whole separate sort of years and years of study to really think about the, the detail of that. But I think it's just important at this stage, for the purposes of sort of, you know, this, we just accept that that is actually the way things are. And we shouldn't be saying to God, it shouldn't be like this, why is, it? why is it like this, change it. Because actually God works with us in different ways. God works with us in our current situations. So he met this woman in her situation. And he used what she had. And he does the same for us. He uses what we have. He uses our skills Whatever they may be, and we all have skills, we all have talents, we all have abilities, we all have qualities about us that God wants to use. Because God works with us where we are. He uses our resources, whether we have time, whether we have money, whether we seem to have nothing. He will use the nothing. He used this tiny amount of oil that this woman had, and that was all. In fact, she, so small... She couldn't remember it at first. I have nothing. Well, I've got a bit of oil. Most of us are better off than that. God will use what we have. He doesn't use what we wish we had. Well, God, if I had lots more money, then I could do amazing things for you. If I had lots more time, then I could spend all that time doing things for you. If I was more confident, then I could be more confident for you. If I was fundamentally more patient, then I could, I could help more people. God doesn't wait until we get better before using us. He uses us where we are, who we are, right there and then. But the key to that is that God requires us to obey him, follow him. And potentially to act. Not with. Sometimes God wants us to wait. Sometimes the obedience is sitting and being still and listening to God and then acting later. But usually at some stage, God is calling us to actually do something, to move from where we are, to change something. And the same was the case with this woman. So what does she have to do? She had to go and talk to her neighbours. How would you feel if you live in a village, your husband has died, you're completely penniless, your two sons are about to be taken away into slavery, you have one small pot of oil left and that is literally it. How would you feel if you were in that situation and your neighbors knew and had done nothing all the way down? Now, we don't know if it was quite that bad, but it's possible that it was. It's possible that she was being sort of effectively ignored by her neighbours or that they were, for whatever reason, not supporting her. And now she's got to go out and she's got to ask them for their jars. Empty jars. So she's not asking them to give her anything valuable as such, it's a jar, it's empty. Go around, knock on your neighbor's doors, and have you got any, you know, in your recycling bin, if you got any tupperware pots lying around, have you got any pots and pans I can borrow? Asking for a lot, you've still got to ask. She would have had less oil. Because it says in the story, the oil ran out when she filled the last jar. So the gift from God was in some way limited or set to end at the point when the jars were full. If she'd asked one neighbour, one jar, presumably that would have been the extent of God's gift to her at that point in time. We get the impression she went round and asked all her neighbours for quite a lot of jars, because she ended up with so much oil that she could live for the rest of her life on the oil she got. Now, I'm not quite sure as a neighbor how I would think if I gave her an empty jar and then saw her living off the proceeds of the oil inside it, but maybe there's a useful conversation to have after that. Maybe the village is somehow sort of drawn more into a community as they try and sort of participate in the wonderful beneficence that this this woman has sitting in her lounge. I don't know. It doesn't tell us that. But you can see what God is doing here. God is saying, you don't have very much, but I need you to take that and use it and move with me into this next situation, this next stage. And I think the other thing that is interesting, and and again, this is not a universal truth, but it seems to me, if you look at the miracles of Jesus, and you look at a lot of the stories in the Bible, that God really works with us on an individual, private basis. And I was thinking of the miracle, actually, that Davina was talking about last week, the guy by the pool... Um, at Siloam, and, you know, there was a situation where he was healed in a very, very public place, in a very public way. Now, there were some of Jesus' miracles that were very private. There were actually some of Elisha's miracles that were very private as well. But oftentimes, what God is doing is worked out sort of in public, in relationship, in families, in neighbourhoods. And in our context, it'll be in schools and workplaces, how we travel to work, where we go on holiday. This one, the whole village was involved. They couldn't ignore what had happened. I'd lent my jar, go around the next day, say, "Um, so what did you do my jar for? Oh, I needed to put some oil in. All right. Uh, is it full? Yes. Well, can I have it back in a, you know, where you going to put it in something? Well, I can't. I mean, come and look. The whole lounge is full of jars. Where did you get all those from? Oh, everyone gave me empty jars. What have they got in them? Oil. Oil? You've got a whole house full of oil? Wow! It's like winning the Euro millions. Where did it all come from? Oh, well, I had a little jar, and the prophet Elisha told me to just tip it in the pots, and it just kept on going. It kept on going? Really? Yeah, come and look at the oil. Blimey. Now, as a neighbor, I know this woman has nothing, so I have to deal with the explanation, where's the oil come from? The obvious explanation is it's come from God. Who knows what state the neighbor was in? Was the neighbor a godly person? Arguably not, because they weren't helping a widow, which the Levitical injunction told them to. What are they going to do now? How are they going to react? So God's miracle for this one woman has begun to percolate through the whole village. And each person it hits, it will be hitting where they are. Where they are with God. So the miracle for her is becoming potentially a miracle for them, or at the very least, a challenge, a decision point, a fork in the road. Is this a miracle? Is it from God? Are you going to talk to God about it? Or are you going to walk away and leave your jar there until it's been emptied and then you don't have to face up to the reality? Next slide. So what do we do with this? Well... Prayer is obviously at the heart of this. Again, we don't know what this woman was doing before Elisha came. But one can only imagine that she was crying to God, that she was praying. Now, we may not be in such a desperate situation as as she was. We might be. It might feel that way. But we might be in a much better place. But wherever we actually are right at the moment, in terms of our sort of physical well-being and our sort of you know economic security and all of those just normal everyday life stuff in West Sussex, we need to ask God to show us what we have. Elisha said, what do you have? And she said, nothing. So often God said to us, well, what do you have? And we go, well, nothing. You know, I'm not... I'm not very good at any of his stuff. I don't know the Bible very well. I don't pray. I don't like sort of talking to people about you. Uh, and actually God's saying, no, no, that's not true. You have something. I made you. I know how you're made. I know every single hair on your head, or lack of, thereof. I know who you are. And you have things that I want to use as I build my kingdom. So we need to ask God to work with us where we actually are, both physically, mentally, emotionally, economically. We need to involve our family, friends, neighbours in God's work. And the crucial thing is that they don't have to be in a relationship with God to participate in that. They don't have to be godly people. The reality, of course, is that as far as God is concerned, everybody is godly. God wants a relationship with all of his creation, with every single human being within it. So he's always reaching out to people. And if you involve them in what God is doing in your life, that gives a potential opportunity for God to start doing things in their lives. Just like the villagers around this woman. And then I thought, okay, so why is life like the great pottery showdown on the BBC? And we talk about Jesus being the potter and us being the clay. And I thought, well, how would it look like in that context? And it struck me, and again, this is a sort of point that is not always correct. So take it with a slight pinch of salt. But God loves an audience. How do we know that? Because it says in Matthew... Matthew 5, verse 16. Everybody remember what Matthew 5, verse 16 says, roughly? Doing your good works that others may see them and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what it's about. Let's let other people see the good work that is going on in your life so that they can go, hey, wow. Where, where did that come from? I thought you were a really rubbish person. And actually you're not. What's happened? I thought, I thought you had a real problem in this area. But it seems to be solved. What's going on? I thought you were really struggling with this. I thought you were feeling really ill. I thought you were, you were really worrying about what to do next with your life. And then something's happened. Why? You just looked. You look happier, you look confident, you look healthier, you look, you look as though something's changed, what's going on. We need to share with others what's happening in our lives so that they can see not just the good things we're doing, but more importantly, the good things God is doing in our lives, or just what God is doing in our lives. And when they start to see that, as it says in Matthew, then there's a chance that they will glorify God and in so doing that they will open themselves up to God to work in their lives. That's really the heart of evangelism. What this widow was doing with her oil was a form of evangelism. She was sharing her faith not by going to her next door neighbors and saying, hey, wow, God is real. God is good. And have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Something weird like that. She wasn't proselytizing at them. She was just relating. She just went and said, can I borrow a jar? No biblical content in that. No alpha course. No long theological training. Can I borrow a jar? And that's what God is calling us to do with our friends and our neighbors and our families. Is to actually to relate to them, but in so doing, to help them see that God is relating to us. So that we become more transparent. Don't hide your light under a bushel. Don't hide what God is doing with you behind closed doors. Let other people see. Now that's a challenge, because that means being vulnerable, being a bit more open. So for example, in my workplace, so here's me challenging me for a change rather than challenging you, in my workplace, I am surrounded by a lot of people, some of whom might be Christians, some of whom might have other faiths. So a lot of them would appear to have not much faith in anything at all, apart from the God of Mammon. But they're still plenty good people, and I respect them, and I work with them, and I enjoy that. But I have a choice as to whether I am transparent with them to any degree. You know, simple things like that, sort of, say, so what did you do on the weekend? Oh, you know, sort of uh, went on a picnic, film. So, there's a, there's a quarter of the weekend you're not talking about. Oh, yeah, and I went to church. Well, I could say, I preached at church. That would be pretty weird, actually. So, here's the you you guys could say, yeah, I went to church and, you know, it was all right. I would have to say, I went to church and I preached. That's pretty strange. But it would probably open up a the conversation. They might just say, well, you're <laughs> pretty weird. What do you do that for? Um, We all have stories that we can tell. We all have things that God is doing in our lives that we can talk about. And for me, I think that's the key thing really from this story of Elisha. There's God interacting with a woman. We know nothing much about her, but she's sharing that story. And it's changing her, and we presume it'll be changing other people as well. And that's what God promises us. If we let him in, and then we let his light out, which means opening up and being transparent, he will begin to change the people around us as well. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are the God of the universe. Thank you also that you are the God who relates to each one of us, where we are, and that you ask us to take what we have And to give it to you as a living sacrifice. And to do that in full view of our friends and our neighbours and our families. Help us to do that more this week, in Jesus' name. Amen.